You want to be a backpacker? Put a backpack on your back, go outside, <laughs> hike the trail, you know, sleep in a tent. You're a backpacker now. It doesn't take some kind of long heroic journey to become the person that you want to be. It only takes the decision. Do you ever feel like a hamster on the treadmill of life? Welcome to She Walks the Walk, a movement I started to help women lead more inspired, more authentic lives. I'm Sam Plavins. Thanks for joining us. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of She Walks the Walk. Happy May. We are in the month of May. It's crazy how fast time is flying. And as usual, I am really enthusiastic about my guest. If you are feeling the urge to strap on a backpack and hit the road, this podcast is for you. I met my next guest online. The gods of Instagram actually brought us together over our shared passion for hiking adventures. Christine Reed is a rugged outdoors woman. I'm doing air quotes there. But you have to know, this handle of hers started off as a joke, actually. She'd never hiked before. She was your classic overachieving student who followed the formula like a good little doobie, got the degree, found herself a decent paying job, and became essentially a cog in the wheel. Fast forward to this nagging feeling she had, what am I even about? Who is Christine? Feeling lost, she became inspired through a random internet search at work. And I don't know about you, but I've been there, done that. You get all your work done, you hit up Google, just looking for something. So she landed on hiking. What about hiking? Maybe that could be her thing. Christine has released her new memoir, Alone in Wonderland, and the reviews, including my own, are glowing. If you're looking for a summer read that's poignant, relatable, and super inspiring, her book is a must-have. What happens when we set out to discover ourselves in the woods? What if we're slow and not necessarily in shape? What if we're scared? What if our quest takes us so far off our current path? What if we lose someone we love in the middle of our adventure? And will the world fall apart if we quit our jobs to follow our dreams? Christine examines all of these questions and more. See, Alone in Wonderland is not just another hiking memoir. It's a book about independence, love, grief, freedom, adventure, family, challenging societal norms, safety, overcoming, letting go, letting in, self-knowledge, and self-acceptance. And if you happen to know me, you would know those are all my hot buttons. It's kind of my sweet spot. So Christine has been an absolute joy to get to know, and I wish that we lived closer. Without any further ado, here's our conversation. Okay, so uh, I want to start, if you can just Tell us a little bit about yourself. We're going to keep it brief because we will go in depth. What, who are you? Where do you live? How old are you? And what are you currently doing? Sure. Uh, my name is Christine Reed. I just released my memoir, Alone in Wonderland. I'm currently living in Denver. Um, after three years on the road, I sold my house slash van vehicle and Celeste? moved into a place. Uh, Soleil. I had two vans. Yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. <laughs> so Celeste is in the book. Um, I was in Celeste when I when I hiked the Wonderland Trail, but after that, I replaced her with a bit of a newer model um, that was more reliable. And but then now I've sold that too. So, um, but I'm currently working on some new riding projects, riding and hiking, and planning to hike the Colorado Trail this year. So, kind of just like you know, doing what I love. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. I loved the book, as I already told you. I thought it was a beautifully woven story, taking us through your Wonderland hike, but also with flashbacks to the past and some of the time you spent on the Appalachian Trail. Did you know how you were going to shape the book when you started writing it? Um, I knew that I wanted to write about my story on the Wonderland Trail. That's kind of how the idea came to me um, on the very last day of the Wonderland Trail. I spent a lot of time in my tent because it was raining. And I actually read a book in the tent and I thought, you know, I've always been kind of interested in the idea of writing a book, but I've never had a fully formed concept of what I would want to say. And the more I like laid there listening to the rain and thinking about how alone I was and the solitude and the experience that I'd just been through, I thought I could write a book about this. So I knew I wanted the focus to be on the concepts of aloneness and independence and and the things that we do to kind of assert ourselves in our identities and in the world. And then I knew that I wanted the Wonderland Trail to be the framework for that. And so after a little bit of thinking, flashbacks can be really tricky um, as a writer. And I thought breaking it up by the chapter, how I did would make it a little bit cleaner and easier to follow. If people are unfamiliar I mean, I'd never heard of the Wonderland Trail. Can you give us a brief synopsis? What is it? Where is it? How long is it? Just for context. Sure. Yeah. So the Wonderland Trail is a 93-mile circumnavigation of Mount Rainier. So it just basically goes in a circle around the mountain. Um, It's in Washington State, Mount Rainier National Park. And Mount Rainier is a beautiful kind of independent mountain. Um, I mean, there's like the mountain (laughs) range, but it just kind of rises from nothing. And it's incredibly iconic. If you live in Washington, you know, as far away as Seattle, like you can see the mountain because it just stands like proudly alone. And so I think a lot of people, you know, everyone in Seattle, especially has this like relationship with Mount Rainier because it's like something they can see. And it's uh, just like part of this landscape. But it is also one of the tallest mountains in the continental U.S. You know, it's in the 14,000-foot category. For a lot of people, it's a big mountaineering objective. Um, People go summit it. And for a lot of people, that's like the biggest, most technical thing they'll ever do mountaineering-wise. So I think it it holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. Yeah. I, I mean, I've obviously heard of Mount Rainier. I've never climbed it. I've never actually even been there. Um, but the Wonderland Trail was new to me and it, it sounded like the perfect length of a through hike. You know, it's not like a six month commitment. It's not a month long commitment. If you have, I mean, you did it in 11 or 12 days, which some would say is fairly leisurely, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I met people out there who were hiking it in six days, um, which means that's they were crazy. Like- 15 or 16 miles a day, which that, you know, six days of 16 miles a day at the amount of elevation gain that that trail has is pretty significant. Oh, wow. um, 
I think more commonly people do it between eight and 10 days. And when I got my permit, I said, I want to be out as long as possible. So they gave me a 12 day permit. (laughs) Yeah. I was totally rooting for you when you were standing there thinking, you know, am I, or aren't I? And that's the way to do it. You just showed up and you kind of crossed your fingers and got the permit and then had a, what, an afternoon to prepare and get the food and off you went. Yeah. Yeah. So I showed up at the park with the food already, but I didn't have it like sent to the different drop-off locations. Um, (sighs) Yeah. But the permitting system for Mount Rainier is incredibly competitive. And when I was out there, I met people who said they had entered the lottery to get a Wonderland permit six or seven years in a row um, and had finally gotten out there. So I I really lucked out doing the walk-up permit. And I definitely think that's the way to go if you have the freedom to just show up and hope for the best. So when you left for the Appalachian Trail, I'm just switching gears here. You wrote, I wanted to become someone who was about something. I wanted to be a woman who found joy and independence. What I'm curious about is why and how you revered independence and what it means to you after discovering more about yourself through the Wonderland Trail. I think as women, we are often told to be independent and it's this ideal that we hold up. And I, I know that it's a generational, you know, there's different ideas about independence for women as the generations go. Um, Mm. And I, (laughs) I think I've talked to women of many ages who all have, you know, very um, intense emotional connection to their idea of independence, but our idea of independence is like slowly shifting as time goes. Um, But I think, you know, women in my age group, and I'm 31, so like mid-millennial, definitely had been told throughout their childhood, like, you can do anything that you set your mind to. And like, you know, being a strong, independent woman is important and being financially independent and not relying on a man for your happiness or for your stability or any of those things that, you know, previous generations were kind of expected to look to their relationship, their marriage for. And I think one of the big things that I remember from my childhood that, you know, it was always my mom who wanted me to be independent and she would talk about how she wanted me to go to college and how important it was for me to get an education and all of those things. And she had gone to college, but she didn't finish college. And I think she always kind of resented that. Um, And she didn't want that for me. She wanted me to, to right that wrong, so to speak. Mm, Um, But I think, you know, the ideas of independence that I was given as a child were all about financial independence. It was all about education. It was all about being able to take care of myself within the confines of the society in which we live. Um, Mm -hmm. My parents did not teach me how to work on my car or how to build anything or, you know, functional, (laughs) functional skills that definitely make a difference in terms of your independence. You can be financially independent all day and you can pay someone to fix your car. But at the end of the day, you still need someone to fix your car. I just, I just want to stop you for one second, because that really struck me when you referenced it in your book about, you know, you were having some van concerns. It was overheating and I'm going to say I'm 47 and I would probably have a coronary if my car broke down because I, (laughs) And, and I was by myself because I, unless I had a cell, a cell phone signal, my instinct is to call someone who knows how to fix it because I, that's not in my wheelhouse. And yet 
you know, I, I have this education and I'm, uh, I guess what you say, book smart, but you really hit on things that I think our, our society is undervaluing and especially whether it's gender related or not, but uh, this idea of you being able to address your van issues confidently, like it's spot on. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I see the world through a woman's perspective, of course, and I talk to lots of women about their perspectives and a lot of us have experienced the same thing, but uh, my brother wouldn't know how to fix a car either. So, you know, that <laughs> <Fair enough>. is, <laughs> and, and neither does my dad. And so that's, you know, it's one of those things that's been lost generally, generationally. And, and in other ways, you know, I do know how to cook and feed myself and, I know how to sew and I, you know, I have some skills that other people in my generation were not given that I think are important for independence as well. But I just, I think the concept of independence is such an interesting one to take a microscope to because like the society we live in just isn't built for people to be independent. It is so much built for us to do the one, like it's a specialization of like, I'm good at this one thing and I'm going to do that and get my money. And then I'm going to go pay people to do all the other things. How many of us know how to grow our own food, right? Oh my gosh. So many skills are just lost. It's so, so true. It's so true. And I, I want, I love when you shared on page 21, um, I'm jumping around here. I hope you don't mind. I bristle at the unfairness of my female body and the social conditioning that tells me and everyone around me that some things just aren't safe for me because of it. And you were constantly questioned on your hike. So I'm tying together this idea of independence with the almost cautious, accusatory, concerning tone people would take with you when they would say, are you alone? And and I went through that too when I was uh, doing my th- through hike on the Camino, which is arguably not as not hardcore at all. Um, but there's this pretense out there that being alone equals danger. And, you know, I believe we need to be sensible and whatnot, but what are your thoughts on the prevailing attitudes around women who set out on their, on their own? Like what narrative do you think is at play when people say, are you alone? I think that there's an interesting shift that's happening. And, and largely I think due to social media and women presenting themselves as traveling alone and like that becoming more of a mainstream cultural idea. But I think that, it is well-meaning, the fear. Um, I think fear mm-hmm. is well-meaning, you know, but I think there's a few things. And one of them is that I, I always remind myself that when people ask me those questions, it is their own fear that they're projecting on me. And I can't blame them for that, right? And we do live in a world that is dangerous for women. Statistically speaking, it is dangerous for women to be alone, much more than it is dangerous for a man to be alone. And it's really unfortunate that that is the truth. Um, But I just don't know. For some of us, it's about kind of living your life anyway. Um, And and it's not that I'm telling this story saying like, look how safe it is for women to be out here alone. You know, a big part of the story is like, I do experience fear. I do encounter people that make me uncomfortable. And I have had bad things happen to me. And I still am not going to let that stop me from doing the things that I want to do. And I think the attitude of people coming up to me and saying, oh my gosh, are you alone? You know, it's shock and surprise 
but it's their own fear because they know and understand the world that we live in as much as I do. And they think I would never do that alone. Yeah. And that is totally valid. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I, I'd actually never thought of it before as a projection, but you did a beautiful job outlining some scenarios that, that I could relate to, you know, even just like sounds, the thump, thump, thumping on your van, which was actually a sprinkler. I, I thought that was ad- adorable. But at first I was like, oh dear God, how's this story going to end? You know, it's it just the idea of of women wanting to take their place out in nature and in the world independently where they don't feel that they need to be rescued. You know, don't get me started on the whole Disney princess thing. I just find it fascinating. I think you're right. The the narrative is starting to shift. Maybe it is because of social media. I think that's definitely part of it. It's made it more accessible for us to see women doing the things that we maybe weren't brave enough to even imagine ourselves doing. And in the same thing with books like Wild and, you know, previous stories and leading up to my story. And that's part of the reason I wanted to tell my story is because I think to alleviate that fear, we need to see it happening. And for me to say, look, I went and did this and and nothing bad happened to me. And even though there was like a guy that gave me a weird vibe, like I just left where he was and it was fine, you know? And, and that's not to say there aren't real dangers because there absolutely are. But I think facing that and and being prepared and, and taking your safety into your own hands in some way is an incredibly empowering experience. And I want to show people that, that they can do it too. You know, anyone who reads your book, I think is going to be inspired to me. It was about self-discovery and identity and figuring out, you know, who am I really now that I'm not the girl that I thought I was growing up with my parents. I'm setting out on my own. And it's like a coming of age story, really. But for almost any age, you know, I'm older than you, but I was like, get me on that trail now. You know? <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. And I've had a few people use the term coming of age and I'm like, oh, am I like, am I too old for that? Um, but I think no way. there's not really an age. It's not so much coming of age as like coming to yourself. Like, it's coming, yes. of, coming of self-knowledge and, and that can happen at any age for sure. Well, I think that's one of the things that drew me to wanting to talk to you. I mean, I am all about self-discovery and like looking under the hood and figuring out, you know, who are we? And, and you have gone and done that. And I didn't start figuring out that I needed to do that until I was like 34. So you're way, you're way ahead of many people. What about the other side of being alone? So the threat of men is kind of what I want to talk about for a moment. You did, you write, I detest the programming that I should be afraid and wary of men. I detest the idea that at any moment I could become a victim. What I detest the most is that my own life experience has only confirmed the fear I've been told to live with. So I mean, since this whole hashtag me too movement and what seems to be more women speaking up against their abusers, I'm wondering if you, if you're seeing a shift in that narrative at all. I definitely have. Um, And honestly, like that, the kind of big 
um, bubble, I would say, of Me Too beginning to happen was happening in the fall of 2018 when I started writing this book. And I will say Mm. that, yeah, it really affected me. um, And it really affected how I wanted to tell my story because I honestly, after being sexually assaulted in my early 20s, um, I kind of put that in like the like, okay, that's a thing that happened in the past. And like, I didn't really address it. I didn't really identify with it. Um, Denial is probably the right word, but like, it wasn't even so active as to be like, denying it more like just it never happened Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and and when I listened to the testimony of Christine Blasey Ford um in front of the Supreme Court in front of the Congress about the Supreme Court I it really tore me up inside I got very emotional about it and it made me realize that the telling of the story is an important part of the healing process Um, for you and for whoever you're telling your story to, and that it's important to share those stories because otherwise people get to walk around pretending this isn't happening. And I don't think that that's a world I want to live in. Like, I don't want to live in a world where this is happening, but I definitely don't want to live in a world where it's happening and we're all pretending it's not. So the only thing that's going to change that narrative is for people to speak out and to tell their stories. I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> no, I, you, 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 you pretty well answered it. My original question was if, whether or not you think the narrative is shifting. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessary to like, you know, dig up things from the past and like go making accusations or anything. You know, these people are long gone from my life. I wouldn't know where to find them if I wanted to, but I think it's so important that you, you know, I stand up and I speak my truth and Mm -hmm. that does give me power over the situation to say like, now I can go to therapy (laughs) or I can do what I need to do with my partner who I'm now engaged to. And like, we can have the conversations about like, these are the things that have happened to me in my past. And like, I can truly examine how they've affected me going forward. And they did affect me. They affected the way that I related to men and they affected, you know, men that I was in relationships with men that I was interested in being relationships with and men who I just interact with on the street, like in so many facets of my life, those things, while I'm not actively thinking about them, they're in there and they are affecting the way that I see the world. So you bristled at the formula your parents had for you, and that is graduating from high school and pursuing a college education. And you say moving on to higher education is held up as a standard of independence in our society, but I found it to be a hollow representation. So I'd like to know why or why not you think higher education is deemed to be the be all end all for young people today. Um, I think for a lot of our parents' generation, it was out of reach in a way because colleges were more selective then than they are now. And pretty much anyone can get a college degree now. Um, I mean, obviously, like there's still a limited number of people who can go to Harvard, but like there are so many colleges at so many different levels and a lot of diploma mills that really like you don't have to have any qualifications <laughs> to get a college degree except pay money and go get the college degree. 
And I think that maybe somewhere along the generational line, when that happened, our parents didn't realize that was happening until like right now people are realizing it. And so to my parents, college represented opportunity. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom worked in accounting, even though she didn't have a college degree. And and she always believed that in the jobs that she held, she would have been making $10,000 more a year if she had a college degree doing exactly the same work. And maybe that's true. But it isn't true anymore, I don't feel like. Uh, I think part of it is that to do any kind of technical work, including finance stuff, they expect you to have a college degree and they aren't going to hire you if you don't. So it's Mm. not that they hire people who don't have degrees and teach them how to do the job and just pay them less. Um, They just pay the people with the college degrees less and then they don't pay people without college degrees at all. (laughs) Yeah. So are you of the opinion that pretty much you kind of need to try and get a college education if you want to quote, go anywhere in the world, or do you see that there's a path for people who um, maybe their education is travel or the school of hard knocks or they're entrepreneurs and they just say, why do I need a BA? Totally. I think that, I mean, the the economy is shifting so much right now, so it's impossible to say what's going to happen in the next 10 years. But I think, you know, before the pandemic, it seemed like there was a lot of people making great success out of essentially self-promotion on social media, you know, like there's, (laughs) you don't need a college degree for that. Um, and, and there's so much opportunity for people to do more like technical work, um, like being an electrician or a plumber or think, you know, there's such high demand and those people are making a lot of money. Um, and I think those kind of jobs you can still do like paid internship for where you're making not that much money for the first couple of years and they're teaching you how to do it. Um, instead of going to college. And there, of course, you know, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, the things that you have to go to college for. But I think going to college for a business degree, like, is a shot in the dark, you know? Mm. It's almost like their degrees are a dime a dozen today. And, And there's an interesting distinction I'll make because in Canada, which is where I am, college is where you go if you want to get practical skills and university is where you go if you want, you know, the theoretical, um, the doctor, the lawyer, the book stuff. But if you want a hands-on avocation, you're going to college. And one thing that I'm <laughs> I'm super pissed off about is that when I was leaving high school, it was like college is bad. University is the promised land. Right. In yeah. other words, you know, there was this kind of hierarchy that frowned upon um you know, we want to push as many people through the university pipeline as possible. And so what you have is a whole bunch of Gen Xers walking around with useless degrees. Like my degree is in music. (laughs) I am not doing anything in music. I worked in finance, but there was this pressure. And I, I think it's really an interesting theme that you bring up in the book where you were kind of rubbing up against this path that had been laid out for you by your parents and to some extent society and you wanted to free yourself from that and discover it on your own. Yeah. Well, and th- yeah, they wanted me to have this education and I was working retail when I was in college and they said, that's not a real job. Like you, that's just something you mm. do while you're in school. And honestly, I really enjoyed retail and I was really good at it and you can make decent money at retail. Um, but you do work weekends and you work nights and it's a lot of, it's a lot of work, you know, but so is being a lawyer or I hear, 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. 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 So, you know, they had ideas about what was and wasn't a, a real job. Um, right. And those weren't their ideas that those are definitely societal ideas and there's pressures around that. But then look at what's happening with the pandemic right now and all of the, the people who are critical to the functioning of society are grocery store workers and, yeah. you know, people, truckers and like they're, you know, those jobs that my parents were like, well, you don't want to do that with your life. Um, those are the ones who are like keeping things running, you know? Totally. You're so right. I'd never actually had that epiphany before until now. I mean, we talk about our essential workers all the time, but you're right. They are. And yes, of course the healthcare workers are, who are exhausted and whatnot, but you know, our garbage is still being picked up. Exactly. Yeah. Once a week. And we pay those people low and we look down on them as a society. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, like, it's just a really strange place we are in the world right now where we value. And I think education is important. And I think philosophy and, and thinking about the way of the world and like those things that you do in college or that a lot of people do in college, like those are important things. And college is an important growing experience for a lot of people. But I definitely don't think it's the be all end all. Yeah, I'm really glad you're saying that. And I, my daughter's in the process right now of figuring out where she wants to go and what she wants to study. And it's really hard to do at age 18. I mean, like, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I'm (laughs) pushing the downside of my 40s. I think the distinction that you make in the book and that I was cheering, like I was going, yes, I was cheering for it is just feeling compelled to question it like this formulaic existence that that we've been fed that we believe is the path to success is not one size fits all and it's not for everyone and i think that that's that's the beautiful thing about shining light on who you are and self discovery is figuring out that well you know what maybe i do want to live in a van down by the river and maybe that's fine for me maybe i don't want to have a mortgage and you know slug away at a job and never actually quote live my life yeah absolutely and I do not look down on people who are like super jazzed about college or happy that they have a degree or trying to get their kid to go for a lot of people that's a great experience and it does help them in their career like if that's the right thing for you by all means but I just don't think we should be shoving it down everyone's throat that it's the right thing for everyone I agree with you 100%. So your parents were not thrilled when you began to plan your adventure on the Appalachian Trail. Why do you think that that was? Was it was it a fear that they had for you? Was it worry over maybe you leaving that known path and getting a taste of a more subversive life? I definitely think that was part of it. I think they they had this idea of me having a career and and having a family and buying a house and doing all the things that, that they struggled to do. You know, my parents didn't buy a house until I was 17 years old because my dad was in the military. They moved around a lot. We were pretty poor when I was younger. And so even if they had the opportunity to buy a house, like they couldn't have financially until that time. Um, And they felt like they did a lot of work to set us up to be in a position to have those things that they worked so hard for. Mm. Um, And I think there was a a touch of like, how could you be so ungrateful as to not want the things that I've worked so hard for you to have? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But also a fear, yeah, that I would, you know, go be unemployed and become a 
what a burden burden on society or you know one of someone who's not contributing to their own well-being or you know you know people parents go down the rabbit hole it could be any number of things yeah. Um, and then I think, of course, there was the safety concerns that I'm like going out hiking by myself and my parents were not hikers. They were not outdoors people. They did not understand my desire to go do those things. And they also didn't, it was a big unknown for them because they didn't have any experience going out on trails. They didn't know anything about the hiking community or, or what the real dangers are. And so for them to become comfortable with me doing those things would have taken a lot of research and um, a growth of knowledge on their part that they were just like, whoa, that's a huge, scary unknown. So why would you want to do that mm. and put us yeah. through that? <laughs> right, 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 right. So I have questions about your relationship with your mom. So you mentioned she struggled with her weight her whole life. And I was like, I can relate. I had a lot of Oh my goodness, we are soul sisters. Everything in my house was diet food growing up and she was always like trying to lose 25 or 30 pounds my whole life. So I'm curious, even though she tried to un- hide her unhappiness with her body, I wonder if it affected you and how you felt about yourself and your own body. You use the words um, fat, ugly, unlovable, which were the same words I used growing up in my journals to describe myself. And it took me a very long time to, to deprogram myself from that. Do you think that there was an, an, an unconscious impact about from your mom's perspective of her body and how you looked at your own? I think from a pretty young age, I saw that she wasn't happy and that she was always dieting or, worried about her clothes, how her clothes fit. And, you know, there was just those little cues and like kids are really perceptive. And, you know, I think we maybe don't see that. And obviously I don't have children, but I, I have thought about, you know, how I would want to be as a mom if I had children. And it's such a hard question because you're already a person with all your flaws and your insecurities and then you bring a little person into that and think like I don't want to mess them up (laughs) with my flaws and insecurities but you you know unless you do the work to fix those things within yourself like your children are going to see that and my mom was a beautiful woman and she was very happy in many ways but she was never happy with herself she got so much joy from us from her family, from my dad, who was a wonderful partner to her. And I feel like there was always this underlying struggle with her body um, Mm. that I was just always aware of. And Mm. even from a young age, I remember, you know, we would go eat at a restaurant and I would say, is this healthier or is this healthier? And I think Mm -hmm. that's such, it's such a sweet, like, representation of the conflicting relationship that you have with your parents who are flawed to ask them the question that they are obviously also struggling with. Like she, you know, she was the person who had all the answers to me as a small child. Um, But this was obviously an answer she didn't have a grasp of because she was struggling with it herself. And I'm looking to her projecting her own 
problem back to her, you know, projecting that insecurity back to her. And I mean, she had to see me at that age, obviously concerned about getting fat, you know, and I was like Mm -hmm. an average size little kid. Um, And she did a really good job of like trying to feed us healthy and take care of us and make sure that we were active and doing those things. She just really struggled to do them for herself. It's definitely a mind trap when you yourself have body issues and then you have children, particularly daughters. I mean, it's, it's a chain. I'm living it right now. And um, it's a real challenge. So you wrote something else that left me almost breathless. And again, it's because I related to so much of what you, what you live through, even though I've never done a through hike like that. It's just your experience of figuring out who you are You said the trail didn't know who you were before you got there. It allowed for reinvention. And that gave me goosebumps. I myself, I think I went through that in reverse when I was out on the Camino doing my pilgrimage. And what I found was I became more myself, kind of undoing these layers of who I thought I was. But for you, it was almost like a fresh palette. And you say, I wanted to be about something. So What did you mean by that? I think as I've become like more outdoorsy and become part of the hiking community and now the climbing community and like different ideas, you know, we identify with the things that we do um, as people. Mm -hmm. And I, (laughs) I think that um, before I found backpacking, I was just a person sort of bumping into things. And I wanted so much to be loved and I wanted to find a partner, but I, I didn't have anything of my own to bring to a relationship. I only had this like desire to be loved um, and to love someone, but I, I didn't have any of my own identity. I wasn't passionate about anything. I was kind of just living the script that I had been told to live. And it wasn't until I kind of stumbled upon blogs about the Appalachian Trail that I read people's passion and I thought, oh, their whole life is about this. Like this is a defining moment in these people's lives to go out and hike this trail. And then once you've done it, like you never go back. You are now a person who has done that. And it changes who you are and how you identify as a person. And even, you know, all these years on from hiking the Appalachian Trail and from doing the Wonderland Trail, like I call myself a backpacker. Like, am mm-hmm. I out there backpacking every day? No, I have other things in my life. But that is a huge part of my identity. And and having done these long hikes that were transformative to me, like allows me to own that in my identity. But even before I went out on the AT, after I decided I was going to do it and was like interested in it, it really became what I was about for the year and a half between the time I decided to do it. And when I actually stepped on the trail, because it was what I thought about every day, it was everything in my life was leading up to that moment. I was changing things that I was doing um, in the moment, knowing that I was preparing to do that. And so it became sort of my focus. Um, and, and before that, you know, with college, my focus was school and, with school before that, my focus was school and I had gotten a job, but I wasn't really passionate about my job. So Mm. after I 
after I got my degree and was working, I really wasn't working toward anything until I discovered the Appalachian Trail. And so that idea of being about something is like, what gets you out of bed every day? What is the thing that you look forward to doing? You know, and some of us are lucky enough to do that as our job, but some of us have to go find that thing. And, and some of us have never wondered what that thing was. And like, I was a cheerleader in high school and I played the flute for like one year, you know, like my parents kind of let me try different things a little bit, but I never found anything that I was passionate about as a child, you know? And so once I got to that point where like academics were no longer part of my life, that had always been kind of my focus. I realized like, I, I'm not about anything. I'm just existing. Mm, mm. I, I really related to that because I had a moment like that when I was 31 or 32 and I thought, okay, I, I just felt like I was just about, I'm this mom and I have this career and I have a house and a husband and I have quote made it. So why do I feel empty? And it was, it was the exact same thing you're identifying. And I didn't know who, what, I didn't know what I actually brought to the table myself what lit me up and then yada, yada, yada. I watched a documentary on mountain climbing and, you know, it would have been great if it was a less expensive passion, but <laughs> you know, so but it doesn't, that doesn't hold you back at all. Right. Like no. once, you, once you've found something that really lights a fire in you, it's like you, you will prioritize making it happen, whatever the barrier oh, totally. is. Um, dart, darting back to your mom, do you think that she understood on any level that you were running away from something as well? Like that you were trying to evolve from yourself described this monster that you'd become in the process of growing up? Um, I don't think that she understood what was happening in my life at that time because I really kept a lot of secrets. Um, which is why I wrote the letter to my dad at the end of the book, <laughs> mm. um, you know, cause he read the book and he asked me about several different things. Did your mom know about this? And I said, no, you know, she saw me as I had graduated from school. I was working a job, making really good money. I had an apartment with a roommate and like things to her objectively, I'm sure seemed like I was right on path for where I should be. I was, dating, looking for someone like that was the next thing. And so I think to her, it really felt like I was running away from my family mm. and, and, and Arkansas, cause they had made me move there. <laughs> right. You know, and I think she had this idea that I hated it there and I wanted to go somewhere else. And, and it was not really that it was so much more that I hated the person I had become and needed to go find a place to be someone different. And sometimes that change of scenery is, is the appropriate catalyst for making those changes. Like it just helps to change everything all at once. On page 109, you wrote, the past doesn't always know the future. When we decide it's time to grow and change, it's not our past that tells us how. We look ahead at who we want to be and seek out a path to get there. And that was such an aha moment for me. Like it was a, a really freeing epiphany in the book. It It is how I live my life because just because I can't 
I haven't done something. I don't assume that I can't do something. But I'm wondering what advice you would give to anyone who wants to consider like a not in their lane outdoor adventure. Because that was you. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best advice I could give is just like, look at what people who are doing the thing you want to do are doing and do that thing. So (laughs) (laughs) it's, I mean, I hate the phrase fake it till you make it. I hate that Um, Mm. because you're not faking it. Like just do it, do the thing until you are the person who does the thing. It Mm -hmm. only takes, it takes one time. Like you want to be a backpacker, put a backpack on your back, go outside, (laughs) hike the trail, you know, sleep in a tent. You're a backpacker now. It doesn't take some kind of long heroic journey to become the person that you want to be. It only takes the decision. Oh, I love that. Yes. It takes the decision. You're right. So I think we, we have these ideas and like fashion, I think is a great example. People say things like, oh, I could never pull that off. And it's like, yeah, like just do it. There's nothing stopping you. You can be anyone that you want to be. You just have to look at who that person is. And that, I mean, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm looking at someone who's backpacking and I want to be a backpacker. It's like, it can be super personal. I want to be me, this version of me. And you look at what that version of you would be doing because they're not here yet. And then go do those things. Yeah. Oh God. I just, I love that. I absolutely love it. And I thought it was so relatable as well. You're referencing how slow you were on the trail and how it you found it to be a real slog. Like it was a challenge. You'd be the one huffing and puffing and feeling guilty for not keeping up with other people. Like, hello, I totally get that. Because I think that there's this, there's this, idea out there that someone who is a hiker or a backpacker is like a fit and fierce and fearless person who is immune to suffering and struggling. And that is just not the case. Yeah. I am none of those things. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the thing too. I don't call myself fit or fearless. (laughs) I call myself a backpacker because I wear yeah. a backpack and I go hike and I sleep in a tent. Um, yeah. and, and those are the things a backpacker does. But I think backpackers, you know, just like anyone who's out on a big adventure, like there's fear. There are things that are hard and mm. there's struggle and there's insecurity and there's like, oh my gosh, that person's faster than me. And like that person's cooler than me. And like her hair looks so much better than mine. And like, I'm still a woman with all of these emotions and experiences and the inner thought life. And like that, that is a huge part of what I wanted to share in this story, because even my social media has turned into this, like, I'm a rugged outdoors woman, which the name, like that started as a joke. (laughs) Did it really? (laughs) Yeah. Cause I, like when I first got into hiking people, you know, I would go with a guy or somebody and they'd be like, Oh, you're getting ready to hike the AT. Like, you know, assuming I'm a really strong hiker. And then they, we'd get out there and they'd be like, Oh, you're like slow. This is kind of (laughs) sucks. And I'm like, sorry, like, this is just what it is. Um, but I got called a princess a couple of times cause I was being like, Oh my God, whiny, or there was something technical. And I'm like, Oh, scared you know like scared to jump down off of a three-foot rock step or something and guys being like what is wrong with you and I'm like hey I'm a rugged outdoors one. <laughs> like, I'm allowed to be scared that is part of this experience um 
yeah and that I don't like it's one thing to like show confidence um but I think it's so much more important to show all the other stuff because I think so many of us are held back by this idea that people who are doing the things we want to do are doing it excellently and they're like, yeah they're out there just like this is so easy everything is a breeze and it's that is not most people's experience and it doesn't have to be your experience for you to go and do the thing yeah no absolutely and I think it's a really interesting dichotomy um Instagram especially because we can go there for inspiration you know if it weren't for Instagram I wouldn't have met you but we also know and understand the performative nature of it. And, you know, the, this inclination to post the the summit pictures and, you know, the, just like all the really badass hardcore stuff there's hiking can be boring too, and it can be miserable and painful and you can want to turn around. And sometimes people do turn around and that those stories need to be told as well. So I really appreciated that you, you didn't sugarcoat any of that stuff. When Christine was just a few days into her Appalachian Trail hike, her mom lost her battle with cancer. We spoke about her grief and how the passing of her mom has helped her become the woman she is today. It's a good segue to the whole theme of grief in in the book. Um, and and you wrote about it so beautifully and reverently. I there was a passage that I wrote down here when you were describing the decision and kind of what led you to he- head back out to the trail. You write there was hardly any room for sorrow. My father's pain had grown to three thousand square feet. It filled every nook and cranny. It permeated the rooms we never entered and settled around the dishes in the cabinet. And I myself, fortunately, have very little experience with grief, but I do know that it's a journey. So where where are you at with that right now? Oh, um, it's been six years since she died. And it's not a question I was expecting. <laughs> um You know, I think about her often and I think often about what she would think or what she would say if she were here. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty normal for people who've lost a parent because we're used Mm -hmm. to parental advice and we're used to parental approval or disapproval. And so I often think about the things I do in terms of like, would my mom be proud of me? Would she be happy I was doing this? Um, And my life has changed a lot in the last six years and I've been through a lot of journey and I've, you know, I feel right now as if I'm in a place that she would be proud of, but I also think I wouldn't have gotten to this place if she were here. So the world is just one of those funny, you know, every moment leads to the next. And so who knows who I would be or where I would be if she hadn't died. Um, Yeah. But I, I don't have a lot of sadness, I would say. I'm not sad on a regular basis about her being gone. It is just kind of the reality. Um, I was going somewhere with that, and now I can't. I, like, lost the words. 
Um, I'm just incredibly grateful for the things that she gave me, you know, and, and there is like, of course, sadness in that, like, she is not here to give me that relationship any longer, but we had such a wonderful, loving relationship. Um, and I have really fond memories and I think she really did the very best as a mom that she knew how, and it showed, you know, Mm. um, there were absolutely periods of time that I was very sad and, and angry. And I think, you know, they talk about anger and grief. And I think the thing that I was angriest about was that she left my dad and then left me here with him. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's been a real handful over the last six years. Um, I think that's the thing that makes me the saddest is that my dad is alone. Um, I don't have as much sadness personal sadness that I am here without her. I have a lot of sadness that he is here without her. That would be really hard, really, really hard. And it's so strange because we all know how it's going to end. You know, we're, we're all, (laughs) what's that song? You know, no one leaves here alive or whatever. Yeah. Um, And, and yet, you know, it's, it's so hard to reconcile is is he has he come along in his journey as well or is he does he rely heavily on you for emotional support um i wouldn't say that he is he's a very uh stoic person so he doesn't mm. he doesn't look for emotional support um i tried to force it on him but <laughs> um he has he has come a long way in the last probably 2 years the first three or four years, I wondered if he would ever come out of the hole. Um, He was very, very sad and kind of like life's not worth living without her. And I have no one to, you know, talk to. And it was really difficult to get him to like speak to his emotions. Honestly, writing has been um, a good outlet for him as well. He's written. Yeah, it was um, writing the book was a very funny experience because he really got on board with the idea right away. And I thought most people whose adult children are like, I'm quitting my job and writing a book would like have some hesitation about that. But he was really about it. Um, And then when I finished it, he was like, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. And I was like, I didn't know that. Bless him. (laughs) So, um, but I think, you know, writing short stories about my mom, he's written stories about how they met and, you know, their wedding and like different things that happened throughout my childhood. And it's been really sweet to see his perspective on things that I remember, um, but also to hear stories from before I was born. And that's a gift that you will be able to keep with you. And, uh, you know, you talked about the great love that they had in their, in their marriage. And I mean, in a way that creates some pressure for you to, you know, you have this, <laughs> this, and, and I appreciated the characters that you unraveled in the book and you trying to kind of figure your love life out. And I was actually really surprised about the the bit on the polyamory. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, this girl is so intriguing. <laughs> But you've, it sounds like you've found your person and you're engaged and you're excited and that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's been kind of wild, honestly. I went through my early 20s. I got engaged at a very young age and almost married. Um, and 
I think partly because of my parents' relationship, I saw this thing, you know, they had a very fairy tale love. They cared about each other in a way that most people don't. And they, they were as in love when she died as they were when they married, you know, like they, and they were very sweet and they didn't fight and, and they didn't just not fight in front of us. They like really didn't fight. They had two Uh, fights. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's like, you know, these, these ideas that I think so many of us get from the fairy tales and all that, like I'm also getting from my parents. And so the pressure was really high for me to like find a person and be as happy as they were. And, and not that they ever put that pressure on me overtly. It was just the pressure of living in that situation, I think. Mm. Um, And so through my early twenties, I had just like dating debacles because I was expecting, (laughs) I was expecting to find that love. And I thought it would be so easy because it seemed so easy to them. And Mm -hmm. every time it didn't work out, I thought something is wrong with me. And, Mm. and then of course that piles on itself over the years. And, and I really got to a point and the polyamory thing was like a, it was a, like, well, nothing I've done so far has worked. Maybe this will work, you know, like, let's just try something different. Why not? Um, Yeah. You know, and then when I met Ryan, like, it just fits in a way that I had kind of given up on, you know, like, I, 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 (laughs) I became very cynical from my years of dating and trying to replicate the love that my parents had. And then I just kind of stumbled into it. So let's just talk briefly about this idea of the rat race, because I'm always intrigued when people use that term. I've used it a lot growing up and working in the industry of insurance and investments where my main job was literally to encourage people to like protect themselves from risk and save all their money. And what I saw was people were, for the most part, you know, they would, they would sacrifice their health by slaving away and toiling and working, working, working to build their wealth. And the idea was that, okay, one day, one day I'm going to, you know, go to Machu Picchu or do that thing that's always been on my list. And it just, it became this like never ending conveyor belt of people who were robbed of that chance because inevitably something would happen. And you literally saw that happen um, with your mom passing away so young. So do you think that there's any hope for our society is basically my very cynical question, because we live on this little conveyor belt. We're chasing this dangling carrot. We are in a race. I don't know where we're trying to get, but it's it's uh, I just want to run for the hills from it. And, and I love that you talk about it in the book. So do we have hope, Christine? <laughs> <laughs> um, as a society, that's mm-hmm. a big question. Um, I think we all individually can make our own choice. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that we're going to become enlightened as a society in terms of making that available to everyone. I think, I don't know. In Europe, they take like holidays why don't we take holidays in the U.S.? <laughs> I I ask myself this every time I read an article on the Associated Press where, like, New Zealand, for example, is now granting miscarriage leave for women who miscarry. Like, yeah. what? 
the heck? And people in Sweden, if they don't take their six to eight weeks paid break, they could lose their jobs. Good. Like, exactly. Exactly. And here, you know, my husband works like 60 hours a week and he gets two weeks paid holidays that he is guilted over. Yeah. Taking two lousy weeks. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Ugh, we are all just cogs in the capitalist machine. <laughs> yes, it's capitalism. <laughs> I'm, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes it is. And and that's why I don't do it anymore, you know? And then, it, of mm. course, you can say, like, okay, now you've written a book and you're selling this book to, like, make money to live off of. And I'm like, yeah, I am doing that. But I'm also going to hike the Colorado Trail for seven weeks in the fall and, Like, that's just a thing that I'm doing that I decided I was going to do. And I didn't have to ask anybody's permission, you know? And (laughs) if I were you, I would be promoting the hell out of this book because it's, it's relatable. It's the thing that a lot of people talk about doing and they don't ever do. And you did it. And it didn't take that much to do, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that I wanted to get across to you is that like, anybody could do this. It is two Mm -hmm. weeks. So if you have a job or you get two weeks vacation, which, you know, not everybody does, but a lot of people do, you know, it doesn't require the six month commitment that a big long trail does, but I think it's just as powerful of an experience. I was just going to say when I, when I started talking about doing the Appalachian trail and my mom thought you're going to quit your job, you've got this great setup, making this money worth working in insurance, uh, (laughs) doing, doing that. Right. And she's like, you can't just quit your job for six months and then come back and get another job. And I was like, why? Like, explain to me why. And she was like, well, you just can't. And I was like, yes, I can. And she was like, well, you have to build a career and like do this thing where you're like working your way up. And I was like, no, I just want to work for six months of the year and then not work for six months of the year. I would do that for the rest of my life. And she's like, you can't do that. Like her, her state of disbelief was so sure of itself. Yeah. You know, like she, she had no doubt in the idea that that was absolutely not okay. But that generation, you know, they would get a job and they would stay at that one job for 25, 30 years and they would have a pension and life would be all hunky dory and they wouldn't question it. And they would be grateful. So, so grateful for that job, which I do understand because the generation before that had their own suffering and the wars and the atrocities to go through. But I think that where we're leaning right now is like your generation of millennials and even my daughter's generation, I guess they're Gen Z. I don't know what they call themselves. They're defining their own paths. Just because something was the way that it was, doesn't mean they're going to do it that way. And I love that. Just like you saying, well, no, I, so I'll just go and get another job. Like you're just flipping the paradigm upside down. It doesn't need to be the same old, same old. Well, and she was like, you've talked your way into this amazing opportunity, which is true. I had a job that I was not qualified for that I like just sweet talked my way into. But I was like, I'm 23 years old. And if that opportunity that I talked my way into at 23 is the best opportunity I'm ever going to have in my life, then like, that's sad in itself. <laughs> you know, she her, <laughs> her saying like, you can't give up this opportunity. You got so lucky. And I'm just like, no, I didn't get lucky. I talked my way into that. 
And yeah. I can do that again. Like I'm, I had faith in myself that, that this was not the only opportunity to be presented in my life. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad we're having this conversation and I'm going to make my daughter listen to this podcast. So I have two last questions for you. I want you to tell us about the two kinds of hikers there are and which category you fall into that, by the way, I also fall into. Um, there are plotters and there are gliders. <laughs> I love that, by the way. I absolutely love how many people have connected with that because it's just such a truth in my mind that there are people who glide uphill like they're on ice skates. And those people can suck it. Yeah. I mean, they're (laughs) glamorous. (laughs) They're so graceful. I'm so jealous of them. They're Uh not breathing hard. Their face isn't red. They're not sweating. They're just like skating uphill and then there are the rest of us and we're plotters we're heavy and we're stompy and tripping on things and feeling so heavy and full of the weight of the world (laughs) but you know I like as much hiking as I have done in the last five years I'm still slow I'm still breathing hard. My heart is still pounding. My face is still red. I'm drenched in sweat. And that that is just a core aspect of my humanity. <laughs> and I love that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and the... I really thought it would change and it didn't. Oh. Like, you know, I think some people think they're plotters, but really they're just gliders who aren't in shape. But they're the right. <laughs> Like getting you, a visual, you can get in, into shape if you're a glider and become a glider, but or like present as a glider, but you cannot uh-huh. do that if you're a true plotter. Yeah, no, I I would concur. No amount of elliptical training and or running, which I hate, will ever make me a glider. I'm a huffy puffy turtle. Like <laughs> <laughs> you write. This is another one. Like, honest to God, I had a lot of highlighted moments in this book. You write, my freedom had become my prison. I was alone in a new way, far from friends and my father. And that really struck a chord with me. Because when I left my career in the hopes of pursuing something entirely different, and then the pandemic hit, what I was really after was freedom. And the irony is that although I did gain some freedom, I also feel, you know, literally sort of imprisoned because of the pandemic, but also this idea of freedom where there are no limitations. It has its own layers of stress and and chaos where there's no definition. Like you can't kind of wrap your head around it. So I want to know what your version of freedom is today. And when do you feel the most free? It's so funny because I've gotten back to the the style of like, I have a to-do list every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I feel most free is when I've finished everything on my to-do list. That's honest. <laughs> I know. It's so bad. Um, but yeah, when you have the, like, you can go anywhere, you can do anything. Like, that's 
really scary. Like it's not, mm. it's not free in the way that you think it's going to be free. It's free yeah. in a way that's, there's a lot of pressure because now it's like you have the opportunity to do anything and like whatever you choose better be the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, I feel incredibly free in that I've like finished this book and I'm doing things like these interviews and, and talking to people about my story and the freedom that I have to say, like, I'm here, this is me, this is my story. And like, to connect with people about it, like, that is what I was looking for in this experience. And it's happening. And the freedom of that and like, is that freedom? It feels like freedom, right? Mm. And like to be thinking about what I want to write next and and being able to make those decisions for myself and and like deciding what I want to be in the world and who who I want to present myself as and how I want to connect with other people. Like that's the freedom. And like I get to do that through this book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love it. And I wish we lived somewhere in the vicinity of each other because I would love to do a hike with you and just kind of peel away some more layers and I'm also really excited to read whatever you put out next like you do have a gift thank you and that's a wrap on our conversation with backpacker and author Christine Reed who has discovered that along with being about hiking and adventure she can be about writing and inspiring other women If you want to connect with Christine, the best place to find her is on Instagram. Her handle is at ruggedoutdoorswoman. But you can also visit her website, aloneinwonderland.com. And her new memoir is available on Amazon, IndieBound, and her website as well, where you can order a signed copy. Thanks for checking out this episode of She Walks the Walk. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a comment or like wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to join a community of like-minded women, head over to our website, shewalksthewalk.com, and subscribe. Remember, you don't need to let anyone or anything dictate how you live your life. You can walk your own road to happiness.